Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Dame Funk, a Los Angeles native who's dedicated his career to keeping funk alive. His music, most recently on display on his new album, Invite the Light, is full of style and swagger, as are his live shows and DJ sets. But he's really earned it. As he told our LA-based staff writer, Matt McDermott, in his career-spanning interview, he's been teasing out this sound for 30 years now, much of it spent in obscurity. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Dame Funk, next up on The Exchange. like I've heard that you feel that funk is not that far from the metal you used to listen to and I know somebody like Thundercat or something like that that's completely his background as well you know and like you feel like sometimes there's room for a lot of aggression necessarily in funk music as well yeah I do but also it's like beautiful music you know what I mean and sometimes I have gone aggressive but that's just life you know what I mean and uh like I said, it can't be gummy bears and chocolate chip cookies all the time, man. You know what I mean? And uh, and you never know what's going to happen at this show. You know, that's the kind of shows I like to have. Lately, I've been really telling myself, like, you know, um, it's no need for, uh, you know, curse words. You know what I'm saying? But lately, based on some of the things we've been going through in life and some of the topics of going on in the news, you know, I just address certain things. You know what I mean? And one of those things is that um, that N-word, you know what I'm saying? It's just like everybody says it. You know what I mean? It's like becoming like every four bars now for fun. It feels like a gimmick, you know what I'm saying? And I just like addressed it. So like I said, the next show, The Hammer, um, it will make up for it with the band. And then I'm going to stick to, uh, you know, the material and, and keep cool on that. But, you know, some things just need to be said sometimes, you know what I mean? So this band will sort of be the band that you tour Invite the Light with then. Mm-hmm. like, And can you tell us like, 
a little bit of what you're saying is like a need for positivity. Yeah. And I mean, that seems to be like the theme of the new album. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah. It's called Invite the Light. It's based on things that I've been going through between uh, To Each His Own and Now. To Each His Own is my debut album and uh haven't been out since 2009 solo at a full length, but I've just been doing a lot of other things in between. The SoundCloud, unreleased stuff, just I'll record something in my bedroom and just throw it up there. You know, then I went on tours and just had a chance to, like, you know, live a little bit. You know what I mean? Meet different people, experience different trials and tribulations. And I think Invite the Light is the semi, you know, autobiographical because it sometimes uh, delves into fantasy, you know. But it's an opportunity for people to see funk in a way that lately with the boogie and the modern funk revolution that's been happening right now with a lot of new labels and a lot of new artists and different things going on in the underground, even with connected with Funkmosphere, it's like, I thought it was time to make a full record that has a cohesive vibe to it and not just a bunch of like singles or, you know, 45s or instrumentals, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I just wanted to make a real album like back in the day that, and even now that people are making an album. That's what I'm trying to do with Invite the Light, an album experience. Like when I used to grow up and listen to a Rush record, you know what I mean? I want that to be a part of the lineage, you know, like Dame Funk, Invite the Light, a, a modern funk record, but in the lineage of like where people made albums, you know, like a Yes record, you know what I'm saying? Like an album. And that's what's missing right now, I feel, in this uh, new modern funk wave that's happening right now. So you're talking about with labels like Voltaire, like PPU, like mm-hmm. stuff like this, like people are more concerned about like the hot 45 as opposed to, whereas you're looking back to like prog rock or concept albums and stuff like that with this well, new one. Not necessarily the style of music, but the work and artistic fortitude it takes to create a full-length album and 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 much love to all the new labels i support all of them it's just that i think it's time for us to progress into lyrical content now singer songwriter levels of uh, funk because you know when when i was doing this stuff you know i came up off of mtume and and change and you know like prince you know and those kind of groups and they were making full records that said something and one thing i'm worried about is that, you know, like with anything, like with drum and bass and, you know, like dubstep or whatever genre you want to call it, I don't think funk is connected in that way to where it would where it would dwindle like those because it was such a niche sound. But I do worry that if we don't progress funk right now in this new era, that it will become like a kind of like a, a fad. You understand what I'm saying? That to me, funk is always not, it hasn't been a fad. It's always been a way of life. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know if you speak about yourself this way, but a lot of people think of you as this modern funk ambassador. And I remember like when I didn't call myself that somebody else did that. Absolutely. But (laughs) I I never did that in the same sense, like, you know, being somebody who looks for records and stuff like that at some point on eBay people used to list a record, like whether it was like Kevin McCord or like whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be. And they'd say, at the end, Dame Funk, James Pants, something like wow. that. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, can you speak about like some areas of the world where you never would have thought like early 80s electronic funk would have taken off, where now there's a pocket, there's a scene, and maybe Budapest. you've had something to do with Yeah? Yeah. What's was, going on there? I mean, they have like 
funk crews, you know, boogie crews. You know, I was there uh, recently in different parts of Europe. They they have like cats that really know their stuff and they've been studying. I get in the car off the plane and they're like playing all the stuff in the car while I'm driving to the venue. And you know, they, it's really fascinating. It's it's beautiful actually, and I'm really glad that people are taking up, especially in Europe. They're very sophisticated in, with their style of music that they love and that they dedicate themselves to or at least show interest in. And I know that, you know, our worldwide community of music listeners can be fickle sometimes, but, you know, it was nice the last couple of years after Teachers on Drop that I was being able to go to Indonesia and hear these people like turn me on to different stuff. And uh, that just showed me that, you know, this little thing that I started, you know, in my bedroom, you know, like I, I've been recording since 1988, man. And, and it's like, uh, I was doing these tapes and nobody tripped over, you know, it's like it was so into rap and, you know, house music and stuff, which I was too, but I just stuck to it and, you know, and I created a term called modern funk and um, I did that because when you talk about eBay, there was sections and categories that people would list their records as modern soul or like boogie or post-disco and I thought hey wait a minute modern funk might be cool because it's, it's kind of akin to modern soul it'll differentiate the earlier type of funk like James Brown and that type of sound and the funk 45s that people were collecting a little known thing that people don't really know about in the digger community and some of them will know this but there was a period where a certain type of funk like the funk that I'm digging and, and the people that are digging now was laughed at you know what I'm saying it was like you know they affiliated with like Jerry Curls or Zap and P-Funk and it was only this like funk 45 1973 74 you know like breaks you know tribe called quest used it you know it's like that whole thing and i was like dude it's like way more funk out there you guys are stuck in the early 70s it's like there was some fantastic stuff being made with synthesizers and drum machines that deserve the same kind of credit and respect that this other funk does. And also where I grew up in Pasadena, it's like uh, we rolled to like the real funk that people were really digging, like more bounce than ounce from Zap. We didn't listen to like funk 45s. That was something that was created from like diggers. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, and nobody wants to talk about this, but Diggers created this whole other thing or like this 1970s Ford funk that no one tripped on in the hood. You know what I'm saying? So I tried to be honest and not run from the fact that Rock Bounce Skate was a great song from Von Mason and crew. You understand what I'm saying? Or Young and Company checking you out or Starshine's All I Need Is You on Prelude Records or anything from D-Train. It's like... At a certain point, man, that stuff was had a nose up. And when you see, like, my vibe sometimes when I do shows, it's a frustration because I feel that the last 10, 15 years, in the underground especially, the music has been interpreted wrong. You know, it's like, and I, I hate this word. It's so stupid, but I have nothing else to say. But it's like the whole hipster effect, it created, like, this alternative universe of what was cool. And cats like myself and others are like, dude, this ain't cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we had to suffer for 10 years and going to clubs and like, what the fuck is this they're playing? I mean, okay, the, getting the good foot. You know, it's like, what about the claps? What about the bass lines? What about the soulfulness? And that's what I've been trying to do the last seven years you know what I mean and thank God that Peanut Butter Wolf stepped in and you know saw my stuff on MySpace and offered me a remix and, and you know here we are you know what I mean so 
Absolutely, and that was the Baron Zen remix, yeah, correct? Yeah. So, but let's go back to you know Pasadena. You were listening a lot to K Rock at the time, and uh-huh. you know, this is when this music started to hit you. Then, like with Prince and Funkadelic specifically, and like to an extent Egyptian Lover, I imagine yeah. as well. Like, can you can you speak about like how? You're talking about something now where it's like, oh, well, I have this 45. You haven't even heard of this. Like, yeah. But at the time, you're saying like funk permeated the neighborhood and like it, normal people listen to this music. And that's how you came up, correct? Yes, we were all listening. Like in elementary school, we were listening to the time, Vanity Six, Prince, you know, that whole era. And Egyptian Lover was really hitting hard in L.A. I got to tell you, Egyptian Lover was a god in L.A. at one point. You know what I'm saying? Like from 83 to 84, and uh, Uncle Jam's Army and that whole vibe. And, you know, I was buying those records at Poobah's Records, getting the bus, and girls liked me because I had the record in my hand, you know what I'm saying, that kind of stuff. It was like, it was fun, you know what I mean? And that is a very undocumented period of music, but yet still, I was also listening to, like you said, K-Rock, when they were playing Depeche Mode and Soft Cell, all that type of stuff. It was just a great time in music, you know what I mean? You can go down your radio dial and, you know, hear different things, KMET, KLOS, you know, that's how I got into Rush and, you know, groups like that. And it was just great, man. I mean, I had the posters, I, even my metal period, you know, Iron Maiden all over my wall, Kiss posters. I even went to a Kiss concert with Motley Crue opening up and at the University Amphitheater, the Creatures of the Night tour, you know, just a great period of music. So I was influenced by a lot, but the funk was just in my blood, you yeah. know what I mean? And you said uh, Motley Crue got smoked that night, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. They but, did. So you started on drums, right? Yes. That and was what, my first instrument. When did you buy your first synthesizer? Because obviously, like, you know, something that's in common with new wave as well yeah. as funk, like you're hearing these analog synths mm-hmm. at that point, right? I, that was 87. Yeah. I was like in about 10th grade and you know, ninth grade or something. And, and I just went into recycler ads and... uh you know, I just found a Lynn drum machine for $200. I rolled it back to my house on my moped, my Elite 80 Honda moped. And I just started messing around. And my dad told me about how to re- make recordings from two tape decks and a mixer. So that's how I started recording stuff. And the generations, of course, were lost each time you record. But some of that stuff made it onto the adolescent funk. And um, that's the stuff that I, th- those are the first type of recordings I was making for my friends and stuff like that. And I have tons of that stuff. I haven't even re- released it. it. It's just something that Wolf chose that he dug. But I have a lot of stuff from that era that I would love people to hear eventually from those drum machines and early synthesizers. But yeah, 87 and 88 was the time period I started experimenting with recording with synthesizers and drum machines. So we're looking at Adolescent Funk 2, 3, Volumes 2 through 10 coming out kind of soon? To. Wolf's just asked about it, but at this point, I'm just trying to figure out if I should do it on Stone's Throw or maybe Glide Zone, which is going to be my new uh, uh, label I'm going to resurrect. I did 145 called Funk Dreams on there. It was distributed by PPU, and uh, it's under a group called Wavelength, but it's a pseudonym. But Glide Zone Recordings, I would love to release things like that on that uh, sub-label. Congrats on that, uh bringing it back so then at some point you get an apprenticeship that's correct with leon silvers the third and can you can you introduce him to because we're from la so we see solar records everywhere but can Uh you can you introduce him and what he did to like a wider audience that's listening oh yeah yeah leon silvers the third he was like 
the main member and bass player of the Silvers family group uh, who started on Pride Records in about maybe 72. And but they were doing stuff, you know, loosely like, you know, before that. But they officially uh, got into the game with those first three records on Pride MGM. And uh, he's just been a very influential cat that I've always studied and you know I love this music and then also they they went on to he after he left the Silvers he did Solar Records Productions with Dick Griffey on the helm of uh, the record label but Leon was the in-house producer so he's doing all the Whispers records the Shalimar stuff uh, Lakeside and Dynasty groups like that and um after I graduated high school my roommate Jeff um he was instrumental in you know being the fact that his cousin was dating Leon Silvers III and Leon just happened to hear my music and then he liked it and uh, so I started you know going over his house and recording things and he would tell me about things about the business and about the bad stuff the good stuff and very hard worker you know what I'm saying uh, he I just learned a lot about him very stern as well but that's just him because he had to like you know deal with so much but Leon Silvers III is uh, one of the most underrated um, R&B and soul and funk producers and bass players of the game you know it's just an honor to be a part of uh, what he has done and then what he's passed down it's still in me you know what I mean and uh, just various things you know like just the vibe the music the um, the brothership you know of of being involved in somebody who really cared about the music but you know you have all kinds of things around you happening that you know you have to try your hardest to focus around music focus on the music and that's kind of like it seems my life is almost like that in a way you know because there's so many things going on around me that it takes a lot to still stay focused on the music only you know but uh leon from remembering some of his stories you know it, it helps me get through you know my my era that i'm in right now Absolutely. I guess no lack of distractions these days either. So that sort of dovetailed like the work you did with Silvers, like dovetailed into like the G-Funk era Mm -hmm. here on the West Coast. And like people always talk about like the records that you played on and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But like this is sort of your first time working as a professional musician at this point. Is that the case? With the G-Funk stuff? Yeah. Yes. After some things with Leon, I I did some uh, stuff with uh, a couple of things he's done, like on this group called Double Action Theater, on uh, I think it was RCA Records, and some demos for Atlantic Star, stuff like that. I eventually moved on to meeting a guy named uh, Binky Mac, who was at a group called Off and the Eye on Priority Records, but they were really signed to Who Bangin' from uh, Mac-10's... imprint label that they gave Mac 10 after he was uh, already popular with the West Side Connection so Binky Mac pulled me in and uh to do some keyboard sessions with him and uh then I ended up meeting MC8 and doing some stuff for him and and just being around you know what I mean I had a chance to you know give my demos to people around but for some reason I didn't because I was always working my day jobs but I just felt like it wasn't my time, you know what I'm saying? I didn't want to step over people. And, you know, of course, I was doing session work for Binky, and he was the producer that was, you know, trying to get things done. And the way I was raised in the hood is like, you don't ever step on, over people's toes. And I noticed that today, you know, nobody pays attention to those kind of rules. You know what I'm saying? It's called the G code. And I was raised on the G code, especially when I got out of high school and even in high school. But afterwards, it's like, I knew 
not to step over my my blessings, you know, and to sneak and, you know, give a demo tape to somebody. It's, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I languished in, you know, working day jobs and things like that while I was doing those sessions. But I knew I had music that could be valuable and, and placed on people's projects. But I had to wait my turn. I often think about sometimes, you know, like, if I was to, you know, step on some toes and, you know, maybe I would have been out a little bit sooner. But my journey is just so unique, I feel, because, you know, I'm proud and I'm able to sleep at night because I didn't betray people who put me on and stepped over them. You understand what I'm saying? And um, one night at a session, you know, at Can-Am Studios, you know, there was like me, a few people from the West Side Connection and stuff like that. And I just, you know... They had like a gun on the on the recording council, you know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, all right, you know what? I don't want to record when there's straps on the recording council, you know? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, you know, I, I rolled back home after that. I didn't say nothing, of course, you know, because I'm used to shit. I've seen it before, you know, but it's like the atmosphere is just a little different, you know what I'm saying? I was like, you know, I just want to concentrate on the music, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to have to be testosterone up all the time, you know what I'm saying? So, but everybody was cool, and they treated me cool. They didn't know I was thinking about breaking. But when I rolled down to 405 after leaving Can-Am, I had Nobody Can Be You But You from Steve Arrington playing in my car. And that's the song and that moment that, that made me realize, damn, you got to go do your own thing, you know what I'm saying, before it gets too late and... You know, and, and not even too late. I'm a timeless person. I just want to do my own thing. I felt that I had material that was valuable. I was already producing on my own. And and what you have to be careful of is not, in that era, you didn't want to, like, um, be lost in session work. You know what I'm saying? And being the session player. I mean, I was a lead guy. You know what I mean? But I, I, I was humble enough to, like I said, wait my turn. And um, eventually I got, you know, into a groove where I broke away and I started, you know, recording my own material. And I started, uh, my lady told me like, you know, here's this thing called MySpace that they created, you know, why don't you check it out? So I checked it out and then MySpace came out of a music player and I started putting my songs on the music player. And every time I was working at Office Max, I would like ditch the record, I mean, excuse me, the, uh, the, the job and I would go home and sit on MySpace and see if I got six plays on my song, you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, and, and just, and then I, they, they didn't even know I was like at home when I was, you know, driving the truck, you know what I'm saying? Cause I had finished all my runs and I would go do update my MySpace throughout the day. And then eventually more and more people started paying attention to my music on MySpace and, you know, and, and like I said, thank God for the internet because, you know, whether we joke about it or not, the internet's not real. It's just BS. It's like, can you shut up? It is real. You can make money on it. You can get things popping. It's no longer a joke. And I knew early on that the internet wasn't a joke. You know, and if you ain't got nothing going on, you sitting up there bullshit and talking about dumb things all day it really isn't important but for musicians like ourselves and, and people who are into art you know you really can garner an audience and and myspace really was instrumental in, in helping people be turned on in my music i remember even vibing with tyler the creator before he was even tyler the creator in there he would like send me stuff you know what i mean he before he even had odd future there was a lot of people on myspace that that know each other and we kind of wink and laugh you know what i mean at, at this point that we're at right now so that's the thing that got Wolf's attention, and uh, and that's when things started, you know, popping off. And at this point, you know, you have so many tracks to the point where, like, to each his own is like a five LP. It's like I've been waiting to 
put this thing out. Like mm-hmm. I have a lot of material at this point, but yeah. I guess like, you know, for people out there who are still working a job that they don't care about, mm-hmm. you know, who are going home and grinding every night in the yes. studio, something like that. Like, did you ever think that, okay, this is just something I do for fun. You know, this is, this is like, I'm recording a ton of material. I know I'm talented, but for whatever reason, you know, people just don't get what I'm doing. Is that something that ever entered your mind? The not for fun thing never entered my mind because I was always serious. I was using the day jobs as a means to take my lady out to eat and pay for my rent and not be a broke ass motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, not caring about like, you do something for me. And it's like, I, I didn't, I never wanted to be a broke musician because I wasn't raised like that. My dad, you know, like when I was younger, he would always make sure that I was up at 12 noon out the house. No matter if you go to the park, go get on a bike, go to the record store, do something, but you're going to get your ass out this bed and not be there laying down at 12 noon. And uh, so when Scooby-Doo and all that stuff was over, get out, you know what I'm saying? Do something. So I just couldn't feel comfortable like laying up. So that stuck with me. And I was again, only using the jobs to finance my dream, you know, and I never gave up. There was like certain times where I was like thinking like, damn, I mean, like, you know, when will this happen? What am I doing? You know, I was doing like just crazy, like jobs everywhere. And, you know, I was broke at one point. I remember one time I like walked all the way from my house on Adams and Crenshaw all the way to Burbank. And that was my breaking point. That moment that I walked because my car got towed in front of my house because I was parked on the wrong side of the street. And and I had to go to this job to pass a test to make it to continue working there. And, um, and I was determined to pass a test. So even though I knew I probably wouldn't make it, I just kept walking. And I walked all the way up through Larchmont. I walked through Studio City. I walked through, uh, you know, by the Universal Studios on the side of the freeway. And, I, I finally made it there, and I took the test, and I and I and I, I was so my feet were hurting, and like those fucking like church shoes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I was like, man, I I didn't pass, you know, because I had too much on my mind, you know what I'm saying? So I remember, and I never forget, I went to the bank, they gave me a last check, you know what I'm saying? I went to the bank, and I just called my dad, and I was like, oh man, you know, I don't know if you available. He worked in Studio City, and I was like, man. I didn't pass this test, man. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, uh, uh, if you can, like, come pick me up, I appreciate it. Just take me home. You know what I mean? Because you always said, like, if you ever need any help, you know, call. But I never would. And I never forget, like, he came and, and I saw it right when I saw his face walk through the bank when I was getting my last check. I just broke down. I just, like, I just started crying. You know what I'm saying? I just, like, hugged him. And, he, you know, he was cool. But the whole walk from Crenshaw and Adams all the way up into Burbank, it took about three, four hours. That walk was the breaking point. That showed me I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to continue. Fuck these jobs. And I'm going to do what I got to do. And I just prayed, even though to this day I'm still, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious. But, you know, I just prayed to the force, if you will the universal force and and I just kept on and got a couple more jobs delivering tools still you know recording in my bedroom and um various places I was living and 
like I said, that MySpace thing, you know, Wolf discovered it. And, and, and me, me, and I was playing drums in different comedy clubs with people and stuff like that. Mike Epps, all those guys I played in, in Lemert Park, you know, with all those dudes, seeing them coming up, Scroncho, all those comedians. Uh, but meanwhile, I was uh, doing my own stuff. So that Burn Rubber remix was the thing that really uh, took off. And I started getting, you know, like offers to do like, um, you know, out of the country DJ gigs, like with Benji B, Deviation and, you know, things like that. And I had, I kept having to tell my job, like, yo, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sick, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I, just a couple more days, I'll be back home. I said, you know what? I can't keep doing these little white lies. You know what I'm saying? I got to just tell the truth. So I just asked Wolf one day while I was working at the Union Rescue Mission, driving trucks and delivering the, the clothes to like homeless people. I was like, man, what do you think I should do, man? Should I, is, you think it's time to quit? And he's like, man, I, I think you should just go for it, man. So I finally did it. And um, it just took that leap. And I never looked back since. And I just been going everywhere in, in Funkmosphere as well, you know, did that and you know, making the CDs because I, I, I wanted to make free CDs to pass out to people when I got that Monday night at Funkmosphere just to, again, back to when we were talking about the 45 community and diggers, it's like it just wasn't enough of the type of funk that we play at Funkmosphere that it was around L.A. It was only a little bit, and I wanted to synthesize it into one night uncut with that type of sound, and it was lacking, you know what I'm saying, in the city. So conjunction with Funkmosphere and the remix of Burn Rubber, and traveling to Benji B's Deviation to do a DJ set, which is still up there. Matter of fact, the first one I did, that whole period, when you hear me on that remix, on that on that mix of Deviation, that was the period and I was really breaking out. I was like, I'm I'm here, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to go for this. And you can feel the energy. I mean, people were like rushing to like the, the barricade or like bumping the turntables. It was like a fucking like just, it, the energy was so incredible. And it was a moment that I realized that it's time to really go for it. And then uh, sooner or later, Rhythm Tracks and Burgundy City and then Teach His Own came about because me, Jamie Strong, who now has Innovative Leisure and The Do-Over, and Wolf were in the office one time, and we were like, why don't we just do a box set, you know, instead of one record? You know, you have all these records. We love them, you know. Let's just do it, you know. And, and that was the innovative thing to do at that time, to release a debut record as a box set. So that's how it all came about, and uh, here we are. So much of what you do is about work ethic. Like, I mean, when you began doing shows, like I, I've heard a story like one South by Southwest, you did 15 shows, you know, and like, was this the idea like mid to late 2000s stuff is finally starting to work out? Like, I'm not going to mess it up. Like, I'm not going to like pull my foot off the gas at all. Like, that's that's the impression that I get, because like, even though you haven't done like a solo full length in a while, like you're putting out material for multiple full lengths mm. for free online like in addition to collaborating with people that were your heroes mm. in the past you know like a, but but is is that the idea like full on at this point like this is my shot like i'm old enough to know at this point it's really just an organic vibe i just do it naturally you know what i mean I, i'm not planning it that's the thing i wish i was more of a planner you know what I mean? But it's just more on impulse and like the way i feel if i feel like making a song to share with people at a based on what I just went through, then I'll share it. You know, um, like with the South by Southwest stuff, that 
that particular time that I did that, that was instrumental with Peter Augustin. He's my manager and booking agent right now. He was just my booking agent, but now I'm, I've morphed everything together at one because he can handle it both. I like small teams. I don't like big teams or entourage, you know what I'm saying? And uh, Peter was just like, man, I'm just going to book you on these things. And I was like, oh, oh, for real? You know, so I ended up doing it, carrying my keyboard case down there. I feel that was like my, um, every musician I feel, has to do the South by Southwest break-in. You know what I'm saying? It's just a rite of passage. You know what I'm saying? And, and mine was an extra rite of passage. <laughs> it was an endurance yeah. test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I and I knocked it out. You know, it was the era of Neon Indian, myself. And it, it was, it, it, Tori Moi was just doing some stuff, you know, waves, all those kind of like that era. You know what I'm saying? And we were all down there and it was called, I forgot the term again, see what I'm talking about with genres? It, it dies. You have to be careful. You, they, I think you know what I'm talking about. They like call it chill wave. There you and go. Then, yeah. and, but but exactly. basically, it's like a lot of people mm-hmm. who are half your age discovering the synth sounds that yes. you've been working with for this whole mm-hmm. entire period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a fun period. Yeah. It's just that you know some of us are still here. Some of us are doing different things, but. That was my era of come up, you know, um, even Ariel Pink, you know what I'm saying? Like not exactly she away, but like that whole like thing was around that period of South by Southwest and I was down there and it was fun. And then after that, I just went on tour, created the band, you know, Master Blaster. And, you know, we just started getting worldwide gigs and, and I found myself as well doing DJ gigs in like p- places like Tel Aviv, Israel, I would have never imagined. Um, Russia, you know, all kinds of places, man. Korea, the line was wrapped around the corner. It was like fucking stupid. I, but then L.A., it's like your own hometown. It's like, you know, hey, you come to fuck with spirit, please come. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, oh, okay, thanks for showing up. You know, but then these other places, like just ape shit, you know, and that's what showed me like, wow, this music is really getting out there. So I kind of knew that eventually, like, things would turn around but at that point like around 2009 10 11 it was still uncharted territory but now that i see all these new labels coming out now you know i look back to a friend of mine named danny holloway he's um a writer and uh and he does some stuff on dub lab he's an older cat worked with uh, chris blackwell of island and you know he told me one day he said man i'm telling you dan be careful man the day is gonna come when exactly what you're doing it's going to be a European cat that comes around and does exactly what you're doing or all these other cats come around and they're going to be loved more than what you're doing because that's just the way people are. You know what I'm saying? If, if it's too black, if it's too urban, you know what I'm saying? They kind of want it to be in a different like presentation. You know what I'm saying? And he warned me and he's a white cat. You know what I'm saying? He was being real. You know what I'm saying? Danny, Danny Holloway is just always real. And he told me, he said, man, the sound that you're doing right now, teach his own, is going to be copied and and redone in a way that you're gonna like say what the fuck but I haven't said what the fuck because I'm staying positive and I work with everybody you know what I'm saying I say open to everybody that's one of the things I wanted to talk about though because I think there's sort of like a little bit of a paradox going on in that you're a bedroom musician that's where you came out of so you you relate to people like Ariel Pink or mm-hmm. like I, I don't know how you feel about like Prophet's record like right oh, on time one of my favorites yeah that's a record that doesn't sound like a hit radio record yeah. there's something like so personal about that at the same time you work with like Snoop Dogg mm-hmm. and Steve Arrington and Q-Tip on mm-hmm. the new record like mm-hmm. 
do you see room for both? Like, do you see room for the bedroom kind of weirdo musician and like the sort of star on stage? Like, can you be both at the same time? And I guess Rundgren is that in mm-hmm. a way. And like, that's like who you just got off tour with. But yes. like, do you see these as like two different sides to an extent? I do. First of all, Todd Rundgren. Yeah, he's an incredible cat. And that's one of the, my main influences along with Prince and and those cats and Junie Morrison. But when it comes to, uh, you know, like uh, I, I'm a Gemini, so I can relate to the bedroom, you know, dirty sound and the overground, you know what I mean? And But the thing that was with Snoop and Q-Tip and those kind of people, it's like Snoop is just like a person that really loves music and it was just a natural fit. It, it happened so organically. I didn't chase Snoop, you know what I'm saying? And Snoop didn't chase me. It just happened like people thought we should have been together. And he related, you know, and we speak the same language, you know what I mean? We move the same way, you know, we, we vibe, we grew up in the same, we grew up across the freeway from each other, you know what I mean? The same age, the exact same age. And um, it just worked out where, you know, we know what this is, you know what I mean? So that's why we did that record, you know, and uh, even though it was underground, it definitely could have been bigger. You know, but when you're on an underground label like Stone's Throw, it's never going to be big. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hate to say it like that. You know what I mean? But I've accepted that, you know, to be on, you know, on a label like, um, you know, uh, Stone's Throw. You know, I really appreciate Stone's Throw, but I have to realize that, and, and it's not a problem. I have, to, like when you mentioned groups like Profit or artists like Profit or even Ari or Night Jewel or all those cats. It's like sometimes the labels that you're on, depending on what happens and if you don't want to go to a major you're never going to be miguel you know what i'm saying you're never going to be frank ocean you know what i'm saying you're never going to be those kind of like cats you know what i'm saying and and mind you i really love miguel and frank ocean i'm saying an example is that some of us are going to stay in a realm that we are like on a frank zappa mode you know what i'm saying frank zappa never had hits but he was revered and loved by the people that he serviced he provided a soundtrack for a certain type of mindset you know what I mean and they really love him just like Todd Rundgren and um, that's I guess what I'm willing to accept now that I'll never be you know Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars having videos made of people in the high school hallway doing the uptown funk you know type of soundtrack bar chucking beer downs throats you know what I'm saying it's like but I'm comfortable, you know what I'm saying, as far as not comfortable artistically, but I'm comfortable in the fact that I know what I am and what this is, you know, and and I rather not do things because I don't, it repulses me to be in a Hollywood type of um, machine, you understand what I'm trying to say? You know, I just don't want any parts of it. You know what I mean? I just want to be able to record music, be able to still go to the grocery store, be able to ride my car and go to a party whenever I want to, you know what I'm saying, and chill with everybody I know and not be on some, like, don't look at me eye to eye. He doesn't speak to you unless the manager speaks to him first. Not like None of that stuff. And that's why I made a song called I Don't Want to Be a Star because that really was true, which is the false start of Invite the Light. That single was talking about how I just don't want to be a star, you know what I'm saying? I, just, I mean, you know, it's it's corny, man. You know what I'm saying? It's just, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be on tabloids or TMZ or anything like that. It's fucking corny, dude. You know what I'm saying? I just want to do the music, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it probably sounds like a, a cliche, but I just dig. I, that's why I love people like Larry Heard. 
you know what I'm saying? Mr. Fingers, those kind of artists, because they are loved by the people who love them. And I just want to give that love to the people who love me. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and or just people are interested in my music. I just want to keep that kind of vibe alive the way I grew up buying records. I grew up buying obscure records and I really love them. I hadn't, didn't have a chance to tell them. And I know I'll never be able to hear what people have experienced through listening to my music. Well, with social media, it makes it a little bit easier, but I'm just good at still doing music from the heart. You know what I mean? And not selling out. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned Larry Heard because obviously to a lot of house heads that read Resident Advisor or something like they might not know, but you play stars alongside, you know, like <laughs> you they really and, know your stuff. Like, I mean, <laughs> like it's, I mean, I was happy when I've seen you DJ and that yeah. happens, but I mean, you, you sort of view that all as like a funk continuum then mm-hmm. like you, like what Larry Heard does is funk music to you. It's, it's an Afrofuturism type of vibe that he has. And, you know, he did start off with funk, but he has his own style. And of course, people just consider him house. But I just call it Larry Heard music. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, he's Mr. Fingers, Larry Heard. And he's one of my major influences. Um, and I like the way that some of the new cats, like Moon B, they're influenced by cats like him. I love seeing the new generation digging deeper and discovering those kind of artists and and what Funkosphere serves is is showing that we haven't forgotten you know come aboard everybody come along have fun we're going to play some of this stuff that you know we love you might be a little embarrassed to nudge your friend like hey I kind of like this weird song you know but you can come to a place like Funkosphere and experience where we're not embarrassed to play it and don't have to play the next Lil Wayne hit you know what I'm saying or the fucking 808 bass triplet you know hi-hats you know types track out there trap song is popular you know trap queen and all night you know what i'm saying we we play music that you really really would actually dig like in your bedroom you know what i'm saying and that's the thing i'm trying to keep alive you know what i mean yeah and i mean i guess there's been a new generation of you know people who appreciate funk like i know that you put say Benedict on and like stuff oh, yeah. like that like uh moon b obviously mm-hmm. like you feel like is that something that's important for you to like bring the younger generation up as well like put people on you know through doing features or just mm-hmm. you know showing support is is that something that's quite important to you it is yeah because it wasn't there for me and uh beyond leon you know but he couldn't do as much because he was already like kind of like exiting the game but You know, I I just really believe in like, you know, all, you know, people coming together. I look at life and even like relationships and relations with different people is from an intergalactic vibe. And I hope that doesn't sound a trip, but I really do. I don't look at things about race. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like whoever's good is good. You know what I'm saying? Whatever sounds good is the bomb. You know, that's what I like. I don't care. I could be blindfolded. The music is good. It's good. You know what I'm saying? And or if it's good to me. So, you know, I love being able to support people who I genuinely support. Now, the thing you got to be careful of nowadays is supporting people that are like big on their branding, you know what I mean? And then expect you to 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 support them because I got my branding together. You know, I got my T-shirts together. I got the hats and then the music sucks. You know what I'm saying? And I'm really watching out that for that right now in the modern funk scene because... It has to be quality, man. 
You know what I'm saying? It can't. I can't be, get behind nothing, man. If it ain't hitting, you know what I'm saying, and it's good for the people, you're not just going to be like my buddy and then, you know, like you just like put out a 45 and yesterday and then I'm supposed to support it and start Instagramming it and like, you know, tweeting it. It's like, dude, if it's, it's if it ain't hitting, I'm not supporting it. And I'm really deciding that right now because it's becoming an entitlement vibe right now. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I don't ever want to mess up what we're building with this whole thing with modern funk, boogie, post-disco and disco and the things that are happening right now by being one of those guys that like, you know, supports everything. So I'm, I'm going to digress and, you know, and, and, and say that I love the new generation. You know, that I'm helping, as you said, you just, I thank you for saying that my man, because you said I helped, put people on and, and, and contribute to things. I am. And I never, ever want whoever's listening to this to think that I don't help because I do. But I'm going to tell you something, doing this since 1988, I don't owe anybody anything. I don't owe anybody anything. I'm still going. I still got some stuff to say. I got stuff to record. I got some things that y'all don't even know about yet. I'm not going to just stop in my tracks and start answering DMs like, okay, okay, let me do this for you. Let me do that. Can you relax and let me finish what I'm doing? It's a good thing. I mean, if you put the record up on Instagram or something, now people know that you really believe in it. So, you know, that's Mm -hmm. the most important thing. And, uh, Good luck on the new album. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll be out at the show on Thursday. Thanks a lot for talking with me. Yeah, no problem. You're so special to me.
Uh-huh. 